Welcome to the LSQ Podcast. Our church began in April of 2017, and our vision is to joyfully live as reflections of God's love together in the city. This podcast will primarily feature sermons from Sunday worship and the occasional bonus content. We hope you'll subscribe. Scripture reading is from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 to 11. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also, as to one abnormally born. For I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am and his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it is I or they, this is what we preach and this is what you believed. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Tracy. Um, welcome to Redeemer Lincoln Square again. Uh, I will reiterate what uh, Vanessa said earlier, which is we are a church that values questions and those who ask them. So in your bulletin, there's a phone number or online, there's a, a phone number that you can text in questions and right after the service we will talk about them. This year, one of the things I've been trying to teach my girls is this truth, that you can love somebody and not agree with them, and disagreement's not hate. That you can love someone and not hate them, and disagreement's not hate. That uh, mommy and daddy love you always, but we don't always agree with your choices. And the reason why I'm trying to teach that is because the world will tell you this. The world will say, unless you agree on some things with other people, then you don't really love them. And if you disagree, you actually hate them. That we, they basically say you can't agree to disagree, particularly when it comes to the topic of identity. Can you agree to disagree about somebody's identity? Many people will say no. But I actually think that it's possible that, that you can actually not necessarily, that you can love somebody but as they agree with all aspects of their identity. So, for instance, there are some aspects of uh, a Hindu's identity that I can't accept, and probably vice versa. And that's okay. We can agree to disagree on these, on these things. Because nobody accepts everything about everybody else's identity. That we should be able to agree to disagree. But this is the thing. Increasingly, what I see in culture is our inability to be able to do this. Increasingly, we're seeing how, that people are not able to do this. We, we cancel, we cut off if we feel like folks are not going to agree with us. David Brooks wrote an article in the Atlantic 
last month. It was titled, How America Got Mean. And in that article, he argues that the reason why America is in a mental health crisis, the reason why in America you're seeing rising rates of depression and drug use and alcohol use and suicide rates, the reason why the percentage of people saying that they have no friends has skyrocketed in the past 20 years fourfold. And the reason why there's so much hopelessness and hurt out there, he argues it's the same reason why we're actually becoming less accepting and more mean. And he says the, re- the reason why is because ultimately we no longer have a shared moral story. He actually walks through all the other reasons that maybe it's because of increased social media use. Maybe it's because we're not joining uh, organizations like churches and you know, groups where we come together. And he walks and says how he walks through them and shows how they're part of the answer. But the largest change is the fact that we have no shared moral story, that we no longer agree in our culture about how to answer questions like, what's the point of everything? And what's the problem? And how do we fix it? And we're, how are we going to do this together? And because of that, we're fractioning out. Some say that the answer to those big questions of life, of life is this, that you should follow what's inside your heart. Right? You'll hear that phrase a lot of times, follow what's inside your heart. Other people will say, no, 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 do not follow your feelings. Be a stoic, because if you follow your feelings, you're going to get in pain. So cut off your feelings. Some people will say that at the end of the day, everything is about power. Reality, the reality of life is power, and there's the powerful versus the powerless. Other people will say, no, 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 you're free to do whatever you want as long as you don't harm other people. And so you have all these sort of competing narratives that are out there. And what I would like to do this fall is that because there's all these different narratives out there, these are not phrases, these are not just uh, cheap uh, one-liners. These are actual, actually powerful storylines that form our actions and form our imaginations. And what I want to do this fall is I would like to do a sermon series walking through the book of 1 Corinthians to look at each one of them. And I want to do that for you because why? Because whether you're a Christian here today or not a Christian today, I think we can both agree that there are these storylines, these modern cultural narratives that have permeated our thoughts and our decision-making. And unless we acknowledge them and point them out and show them and see them and weigh them and say, hey, are these things working or are they not working? Unless we do that, we will be bound to unknowingly being captive to them, letting them control us without us even knowing it. And so I want to start today. What we're going to do today is we're going to start with the gospel narrative. We're going to look at the core essence of what Christianity says is the storyline of life. Because why? Because every week after this, we're going to compare and contrast the other cultural narratives to this one. So let's start this way. Let's look at this passage in three parts. The narratives, the gospel, and then the change. The narrative, the narratives, the gospel, and then the change. So first, the other narratives. Paul, in the book of 1 Corinthians, he's talking to newbie Christians. He's talking to individuals who had just become Christians and Corinth was very similar to New York back in its day. Back then it was an economic powerhouse. Back then it was uh, a center for culture and production and wealth and clout. And he knew that the men and women that had just become Christians had lived decades, most of their lives, with the cultural narratives and assumptions of that area. The church in Corinth was a mess then in, in his mind because 
even though these people called themselves Christians, they weren't living like they were. And that's an important facet for us to remember, that it is possible to say you're a Christian doesn't mean you really are. Just because you intellectually believe it doesn't mean you live it. Look at verse 2. Verse 2 says, Otherwise you have believed in vain. What is that about? Well, vanity is emptiness. In other words, you can have an empty belief, an empty faith. That you can have a, a concept in your head that it hasn't moved into your heart because it hasn't actually changed how your imagination works. To say you're a Christian but then not really be transformed and changed is possible. So, for Paul then, what's the answer? Look at, look, go back to our text. Look at verse 1. He says, the answer is to be reminded. That's what he says in verse 1. I'm here to remind you. I have a friend who, he's so forgetful, he has these sticky notes all over his house to try to remind him of the things that he needs to get done for not that day. And a lot of times there'll be sticky notes from like weeks ago, and I'm like, hey, what about this one? And he'd be like, oh, I forgot about that one. And I'm like, well, then your system's not really working. But to be honest, I, I, I use Google Calendar because if it's not in my calendar, I'm not going to remember what I need to do and where I need to be. Because why? Because here's the thing about forgetfulness. Forgetfulness is not... When you forget, you're not, most, you're not usually just sort of, your brain's not just numb and you're staring off into space. If that's the case, then you have bigger problems and you should go get that worked at, looked at. Um, the thing about forgetfulness is this, is that you're not, it's not that you're mindless. Usually you're forgetful because something else has captured your imagination in that moment. You're forgetting this because you're thinking of that. Something else is taking up that brain space and capturing your imagination. In the 80s cult movie Labyrinth, the protagonist, the main character, is given a bedroom in the middle of all the heartache and in the middle of all the stresses of, of her adventure. She's given her bedroom with her dolls and all her possessions and all her things. Because what? So that it would distract her. So she would pay attention to those things instead of the more important thing, which is finding her baby brother. And I think it's the same thing for us. The distractions that are most messing with you right now are usually good things that are pushing out the important things. That your imagination is being moved. It's being captured by some other cultural narrative. And Paul knows that, which is why he says, hey, you need to be reminded of what? He says, look, I want to remind you of what? The gospel that I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. And then in verse 2, that the gospel by which you are saved. This is, in key, this is a key facet, by the way. It's not you will be saved, or if you follow my rules and do everything I say, then you will be saved. No, he says that, no, you already have been saved. And so what's the problem? The problem is that that truth has not actually populated the imaginations of the individuals in Corinth. That truth is actually being weighed and thought through in all of our minds, and there are other images and, and other narratives that have come into our brains and are vying for our attention. And so I guess before we move on, I want, us to ask, I want to ask that question for all of us. Do we realize that there are competing narratives in us vying for our attention? Do we realize that the reason why we, they needed to be reminded to hold firm is because often we're not holding firm. I used to do college ministry, and I would talk to students 
uh, on campus, and I, and I would say, hey, so tell me, tell me about yourself. Wait, what do you believe? Like, oh, I don't believe in anything. I don't believe in any religion. I, actually, I don't even believe there's, there's one truth out there. No one has the truth. And sometimes when I wanted to be snarky, I would kind of push on them. I'd say, except for that one, right? And they'd be like, what do you mean? I'd go, well, you just said there's no truth out there. Of course, that's a truth, so there's no truth except the truth that there is no truth, right? And then they'd be like, oh, okay. And that's a contradiction. And they'd say, well, no, no, the whole point is to follow your heart. Just follow your heart. And I would, you know, again, being snarky, I'd be like, okay, yeah, you know, Hitler was following his heart. He was doing a pretty good job at it, right? He was, he was in charge. And they'd say, oh, no, no, he wasn't following his heart because you're not allowed to harm anybody. i said, oh, okay, well, whose definition of harm? And sometimes the, 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 the smarter students will say, hey, utilitarianism, right? You, the, the society decides on what's harmful. The majority sets that. So the most joy, the most goodness for the most amount of people. And say, oh, okay, so as long as the majority says something is okay, it's okay to then oppress a minority that has a different view. They're like, oh, no, 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 that's not okay. And I'm like, okay, but, well, what's going on here then? The point is, is that there are, these, there are all these inconsistent narratives follow your heart, do no harm, live to be free, that we're sort of, we, they complete actions inside of us. If we say, you know what, I want to do X, Y, or Z in my life, well, how do I, what's the rationale for it? Well, I have these cultural narratives that allow me, let me do that. But is it possible that those things, that when they come into us, is it possible we've absorbed some cultural narrative that it's not actually given us the peace and the contentment and the love and the care that we, that we were told it would? Or do we not realize, or are we not willing to admit that maybe, whether you're a Christian or not, we've absorbed cultural narratives as assumptions of our space because of where we're living in New York circa now, and, we, and they, they have undue influence on us, and it's part of the problem of why we're not, things aren't being given to us to what we thought would. It's part of the reason why we're, the happiness, the contentment, the needs and the wants aren't being met. That's point one, the narratives. Now, point two. At Redeemer Lincoln Square, we value questions and the people who ask them, which is why we hold a time of question and response, or Q&R, after worship on Sundays. It's an opportunity for anyone to text in questions and then process responses alongside our pastoral team and other members of our church community. If you have a question, feel free to email us at lsq at redeemer.com or join us at Q&R on a Sunday morning. And now, back to this week's sermon. Fine then what's the gospel? Paul knows that you and I have these other stories and narratives. He knows that these people do too. And so what he says, look at verse 3. He says then, I want to pass on to you of what is of first importance. This is actually a really cool phrase that he says, hey, there are all these other stories and narratives. Great, but I want to tell you what's most important. If somebody says to you, hey, what's most important in Christianity? You should quote Paul here. Because he's about to tell us what's most important. He says two things. One, he says Christ died for our sins. And then two, he was buried and was raised on the third day from the dead. That's the core of Christianity. Christ died for your sins, died, buried, and rose again. And what I find really interesting about Paul in this text is I think what he should have done is gone down into that core. But actually what's interesting here is he doesn't do that. Immediately, what does he do? He cites six different audiences that saw the risen Jesus. Look what he does. Right after he says, 
he says he appeared to Caiaphas, which is uh, Peter, then the twelve, then five hundred, then to James, then to all the apostles, and then to even himself. Why is he doing that? I think the reason why Paul is bringing this up is because he's saying this is so important. This is so the core of who, of what Christianity is, that when people say today, how do we really know Christianity is really true? How do we really know that, you know, this was written so long ago, how can we be so sure this is real? Paul is saying these people are eyewitnesses. Most scholars will agree that 1 Corinthians was written uh, about 20 years after Jesus died. Some scholars even say 14 years. And so for him to bring up these eyewitnesses, it's a way for, you, for him to say, don't take my word for it. This is real. See, if I wrote a, a, a letter and I published it and said, hey, my friend Bob, he, was, he rose from the dead. Come to Redeemer Lincoln Square. There's 500 people there. And, uh, you know, they'll vouch for it. If they, people will show up and say, hey, did, did, did Bob really, you know, rise from the dead? And you'd be like, no, that's Mike. Mike's just, he'll say anything, whatever. Don't worry about him. Like you, it would be, the, the letter would, would go down, wouldn't work. It wouldn't stay. It wouldn't become what we have today. Instead, what Paul is trying to say is that there are people out there who actually saw Jesus go check with them. He's doing this because he thinks it's so important for you. Not just to intellectually say, oh yeah, like, it's a cool story. It's a cool idea. Maybe, you know, it, it, it makes me feel better about myself. He's saying, no, 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 no. The power of Christianity is that it actually happened. The power of Christianity is that it's real. In other words, he, he doesn't say believe in Jesus if it helps you. That's actually I have a lot of friends that say, oh yeah, if that works for you, good. Good for you. No, he's saying if Jesus really did, in history, die for your sins and rose again, if it's true, that's when it changes everything. It doesn't matter if you don't want to believe in him. Some people say, I don't want to believe. It doesn't matter. Why? Because if it, is it true? Did it happen? Freud liked to say that religion is um, wish fulfillment, that the reason why humanity likes uh, religion is because it's wish fulfillment. You, you go into it because you want to get things done for yourself. But Paul here says, listen, um, that's a nice idea, but if the death and resurrection of Jesus was actually fact, it's not true because it fulfills you. It fulfills you, only can fulfill you because it's true. Only then do you get the benefits of the cross and the benefits of the resurrection. Because why? Because the cross is where your sins are paid in full. And the resurrection is the receipt that the payment was made. The cross is where the trajectory of our lives are changed. And now, if you really believe it, then what happens? Everything else about how you view life changes. What matters to you changes. Right? The hole in your sweater that you got really pissed about because you spent a lot of money on. You know what? If there's no cross, no resurrection, you can have any kind of view you want. But if the cross and resurrection is true, that hole does not ultimately matter. That job that you lost doesn't ultimately matter. That friendship, as hard as it was, the cross and resurrection redefines how we view reality. It redefines what matters. It redefines who we hang out with. It redefines what we spend our time on, what we spend our money on. And so I guess before we move on is, have you allowed the gospel narrative to affect you? 
There's a lot of people in this room that say, yeah, yeah, I'm a Christian. I believe in this. But does it impact how we live it out? Does it impact our everyday lives? Because here's the question we need to ask ourselves. What happens when shame starts speaking back to us? What happens when shame starts saying, you did this? You thought this. You lusted after this. You, I know what you've done. I know what you're doing. I know what you will do. What happens when shame says this to us? Because if Christ really died for your sins, then shame doesn't have the last say. Shame doesn't actually get to win. But only if this is true. He will give you all that you need, but he will not give you necessarily all that you want. Does that impact us? Has the real Jesus affected us? How, are we centered on him? And Paul is saying to these sweet Corinthians, he's saying, that's the core of Christianity. The core of Christianity is not what you must do. It's what's already been done. And centering your life on that is where change happens. Now, last point. That's all nice. The narratives, the gospel, but now the change. See, all this information is really cool, right? Michael's talking about all these inconsistent cultural narratives and how they're messing us up. And he's talking about the center of the gospel, the death and resurrection of Christ. But this is the point where most New Yorkers do this. They say this phrase. I love this phrase. So what? And most New Yorkers say that phrase. There's, in, in this context, the assumption underneath the phrase, so what, is this. It's good for you. Glad that you believe it. Glad that it helps you. Don't push that belief on me. That's what they're saying. And this is, this is actually another one of those pesky cultural narratives. It's that when people say, hey, you do you. Just don't push that on me. The minute you say that, the minute that happens, don't push your beliefs on me. That's actually a belief that you're trying to push on others. If you say, hey, believe whatever you want to believe, just don't push that belief on me. You're trying to push the belief of don't push your beliefs on me. I have a really good friend. Um, he knows I'm a pastor. I, I met him. I knew him. I've known him since middle school. Uh, he's not a Christian. And he's like, hey, Mike, that's great that you're a, a, you know, a pastor and whatever. Just don't try to proselytize me. Don't try to change my opinion. And I'm like, and we're good friends. I'm like, hey, respectfully, you're trying to change my opinion right now about not changing your opinion you're, you're doing the very thing that you're telling me I, you don't want me to do to you. But at least you're not being honest about it. See, at least I'm going to be honest. I'm going to tr- I actually think this is true, and I think you should know it. But you, you're telling me that I shouldn't push on you when you're pushing on me on that statement. Right, right now you're doing that. And he's like, okay, good point, Mike, but uh, still I don't want you to try to convince me. <laughs> that's, what, that's what he says. And I, and I get that. I, I, I get the New Yorker mentality, but here's the truth. The truth is this. Every religion... Every philosophy, our secular culture, the narratives that are there, essentially says this. If you want to make the world a better place, you got to get people to do the right thing. And the way you get people to do the right thing is you make them obey, and then they'll be accepted. That is the overarching narrative of our world. Every religion says, do this, do this, do this, then you'll be in. But secularism has the same thing, by the way. You could probably, if we sat down together, you could probably tell me, some of the forms of what our secular culture says. If you do these things, then you'll be in. If you, if you look inside and discover who you are, then you'll be in. If you, do it, if you do it this way, you're in. But Paul has an alternative narrative. Look at verse 9. In verse 9 he says, For I am the least of the apostles. And there's, in this little phrase, there's a mini confession happening. Paul's remembering 
who he is and what he's done. He knows that he's persecuted the church. And that phrase, what he's saying is, I've killed people. I've stoned people. I was there for Stephen's stoning. I was there where I'm responsible for ruining other people's lives. I've taken people's mommies and daddies away from their children. And he has to live with those memories. What does he do with that? What do we do with the dark spots of our souls? What do we do with the parts of us that we still feel shame for? That we, don't, that we hide from ourselves from? That we put the ear, earbuds in and, because we don't want to think, we don't want to be stuck in our own thoughts because if we do, they don't go to happy places. Look what Paul does. I'm the least. He's thinking about his own, what he's done. He's thinking about the worst parts of himself. And the minute he does that, verse 10, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. Three times, not once, not twice, three times uses this word grace. He throws grace at himself. By the grace of God, what? It doesn't just mean acceptance and then you're unchanged. Notice he says this grace is not without effect. In other words, all real grace. You can't get the gospel without grace, but if you get grace, there's always change. Unless you, if you didn't, if you, there's no change, then you never got grace. You never really understood what it means. But for Paul, he says, I got grace and that's why I'm changed. You can almost hear the transformation happening in him. John Newton uh, was a slave trader. He wrote the hymn Amazing Grace. He became a minister. He was preaching on this exact phrase, and this is what he says. He says, Now every Christian can say, I am not what I ought to be. I'm not what I might be. I'm not what I wish to be. I'm not what I hope to be, but I am not what I once was. By the grace of God, I am that I am. Is that how you see yourself today? Is that how you see yourself? Do you, are you able to say, I'm not what I ought, I'm not what I hoped, I'm not what I want to be, I'm not what I wish to be, but you know what? I'm not what I once was. And I, now, I am now so much more. But by the grace of God. That's Christianity. That if every other worldview says obey and then you're accepted, right? you see here, completely different, you won't see it anywhere else, is that you're, you're already accepted. It's not that... You know, go back to the first couple of verses. It's not that you will be saved. No, it's that you already have. You are saved. And I know P- Americans, I know Westerners, I know New Yorkers, we don't like that. It seems too good to be true. But it's basing your life on that fact. That's where all the change happens. That's where the heart starts brimming over with the joy and the love and the care that can actually spill into other people's lives. If you don't have it, you don't do it. The stories that you and I have been told our whole lives from day one in our birth, this is what, they've, what our stories have told you. Find your happiness in your job. Find your happiness in a loved one. Find your happiness in some stuff. The more material things, the better you look, the better you act, the, the more stuff you have, then you feel better. And, there, and we throw everything into these things. And they're, part, they're actually partly true. People are good and jobs are good and things are good. But they're not going to fulfill you. They're not going to save you. They're not going to be the things that you, that you think you need. Well, you think you need them, but they're not going to be the things that, that actually will save. This is where I think Christianity is utterly, utterly different. Only Christianity says you are accepted first. Christ died for your sins. And now live in light of that. That's grace that you don't deserve, but you get. And when that clicks, when that gratitude becomes welled up in your soul, 
you'll be surprised about how often then you can actually go and love and serve and care in ways that you couldn't before. That's where the supernatural power is. Transformation, real transformation happens not just hearing this, folks, not just believing this in, in your head, but when the change happens, when this becomes the actuating power in your life, when this becomes the default way that you view everything else. We can put this in reverse, right? Put it this way. Today, if you're feeling bummed out, if you're feeling despondent, if you're feeling downcast, is it possible that the reason why is because that we're upset and confused that our life hasn't gone the way we wanted it to, that we don't know why things have happened the way that they've happened? Is it possible that, we've, that basically we're missing out on what, what, what life is really about? Let's compare and contrast, right? If life is just eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die, right? There, there is a view out there. That means then really there is no overarching world plan. This is just a dog-eat-dog world. And really you should just look out for number one. Don't give your money away to the church. Don't, give your, don't try to help other people. If you help other people, you're just going to help them do better than yourself. No, you've got you to look out for yourself. Is that the way to live? Or is there potentially another narrative to life? Some of you say, oh, no, no, I'm a Christian. I believe in Christianity. Okay, fine. Well, then, how do you read the Bible? Some people read the Bible still. It's basically about me. Right? Is the point of the Bible to be like Abraham and have faith? Be like Moses and really believe? Be like David and slay the Goliath of your life? Is that the point of, of Christianity? See, I think if you, if you think that, you're still placing yourself at the center. My pastor in college, I became a Christian in college, he used to say, listen, there's only two ways to read the Bible. It's either essentially about you or essentially about him. And if it's essentially about you, then yeah, you're the, great, you're the, act, the main actor. It's what you need to do. But if it's essentially about him, then, it's not, then the reason why I, I don't know, the reason why I live my life and I don't really realize I need a Savior, it's because I still think it's about me and what I need to do. But if it's essentially about him, then I need to get into the text and say, what's it trying to tell me? It's not trying to tell you, slay more Goliaths in your life. It's trying to say there was one who was the true David, the better David, who came unlooked for. There was a better David who was looked over and rose up and yet fought for his people and slayed the true giant of our life, and that's death. And now whatever happens, death doesn't have the last say. That's what the resurrection is really about. Right, that death doesn't have the last say. I was watching the 80s movie um, Princess Bride yesterday by myself. <laughs> yes, you're allowed to laugh. That's exactly the right thing to say. What's he doing watching Princess Bride by himself? I don't know. <laughs> but I saw something I hadn't seen before. I, at the very end of the movie, Ningo Montoya, um, he's uh, been searching for the six-fingered six man who uh, killed his father. And he finally is confronting him and and he's won at the battle, and he's about to slay him, and he says, offer me money. And the man says, yes. He says, offer me power, anything you want. Offer me everything and anything. And the man says, whatever I have will be yours. And the man, and Inigo Montoya says, I want my father back. I started crying. I was like, oh, shoot, here it goes again. Because I, I felt the same way. I was like, that's what I want. I want my dad back. 
My dad's birthday was yesterday. He would have been 73. Earlier in that same movie, there was a, a sappy scene between two people who love each other. And one character said to the other, death cannot stop true love. All it can do is delay it for a while. And at first I was like, oh, that's so sappy. Death cannot, de- what is it? Death cannot stop true love. All it can do is delay it for a while. And then I realized, actually, that's true. If Jesus is real, if this really happened, and he slayed death, and death is no longer the finality of your life, it's just a sleep that you'll wake from one day, then I'm going to see my dad again. You're going to see your loved ones again. And death can't stop it. And I'll be able to get my father back, and you'll be able to get your life back. And I will, why? Because we'll be with him. And so when we're downcast and we're despairing in those moments, what's happening is our hearts are being captured by some other reality and some other imagination, some other cultural narrative. And yet, that's because we're not realizing Jesus really has defeated death. If redemption and restoration is real and certain, we might not know what's coming. We might not know why what's happened has happened. We might not know why things are going the way that they're going, it's, but at the end of the day, we know that he defeated death, and that changes Paul, and it changed me, and it can change you if you let this be the core of who you are. And the last thing to say then is, will you let it? Because if you let grace be the defining narrative of your life, if you realize Jesus didn't just die for people in general, but he died for you, if you realize it wasn't just people back then who hung Jesus on the cross, that you hung Jesus on the cross. Every time you live your life centered on yourself, what you're essentially saying is, Jesus, you're not who you say you are. That means you've done that to him. And yet he stayed. He, he's Jesus. He could have gotten off there anytime he wanted. But he stayed for you. And the, so the reason why death cannot stop true love is because it didn't stop Jesus, who is true love personified who went into death for you. And the reason why this story is inside the Prince's Bride, it's because it's actually at the core of every story. Right? What's Sleeping Beauty? Sleeping Beauty says that there is a love out there that breaks the power of evil. What's Beauty and the Beast? That there is a love that, a sacrificial love that can transform even the worst parts of you. Harry Potter, right? You can have sacrificial love that changes you, and that's a deeper magic. Every single story out there essentially has something bad, it's all over, and then there's a happy ending. Because it mimics the true story. The true story of Jesus living and dying for you. That's not one more story, it's the story underneath all other stories. It's the essence of every other story. The world will say this, here's how to live. Christianity says, here's the one who lived for you. Every other story says, here's what you need to be. Only Christianity says, here's what's been done for you. Will you let him today be the main character of your life? The cultural narrative that's whispering in your ear is you're the center of reality. You're the center. And it's, to, it's killing us and it's killing the world. But if you let him be the center of your reality, it changes us and it changes the world. Folks, I wish that this church won't be individuals who just believe this, who just say it, but I would like, I'd love it if we would live it. Let's let it affect our time, our money, our space, our lives. And if it did, it would change the world. It would change us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, 
How do we know that we really believe this? Father, I pray that if we're not Christians this morning here, I pray that we will, we will be honest with ourselves and ask ourselves, well, what narratives are we living, am I living by? And are they working? But I pray if we're Christians here today, I pray we, we will say, what might be the... What might I have intellectually said yes to in you, but functionally lived my life through some other narrative? Father, I pray that we will be people who can agree to disagree... Why? Because we're in line with you. And you love us, but you don't agree always with things about us. And your disagreement of those things doesn't mean you hate us. I pray we put that at the core of who we are. Knowing that you are the one who lived and died for us, if we make that the core of who we are, we will live and die for other people. I pray that we will be people like that. And we will be people who have lives marked with joy, not happiness. Joy is being able to still be content, even in the hard spaces. Joy is being able to still smile in the hardship. I pray we will be people like that, real people. Amen. Thanks for listening to our podcast. We pray that it's a helpful resource as you process aspects of Christianity and grow in your faith. To learn more about our church, including details about Sunday worship, check out our website at RedeemerLSQ.com.